0: This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and acknowledge their ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Colonization and genocide are ongoing processes that are still continuing to this day. Sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. <laughs> Hey everyone, and welcome to OzPol snackboard the podcast that's kind of like vegan cheese. Humans
1: consume it. That's right, Noon. We are two of Australia's foremost political nobodies, and we bring you bite-sized chunks of Australian news and politics with a side of crispy memes, or we would usually do that, but we're not doing that this week because I am away, and... I, I of course, mean Zach Snack, which is my name, and with me, as always, is another person with a different name.
0: It's me. You already said my name. It's Noon. Hi. Welcome back, everybody. This is a messy intro.
1: Yeah, this isn't... Look, it's no. not our best work, but it's okay. The rest of the episode should be okay. Um, so yeah, I'm away this week, so uh, we are playing you one of our bonus episodes. Um, I think this is the bonus episode from the month of May memory, um, we do monthly bonus episodes for our patrons. Over on Patreon, if you sign up for uh, as little as $1 a month, you get a monthly bonus episode plus other stuff. Um, and this was one that got a pretty positive uh, response yeah. from, from our patrons. It's also um, been long
0: awaited because it's about uh, veganism and everyone knows Zach's a vegan and also that he doesn't like talking about it all the time uh And so we've had a few requests, and you've kind of been like, oh, "I don't really want to talk about it," uh but you did, and it was yeah. Good. I
1: kind of like yeah. I'm quite I'm passionate about veganism. I'm passionate about ab- animal liberation, but I like was hesitant to talk about it on the show because I feel like you know I want to do a good job of being an ambassador mm. for the movement or whatever. Oh, God, that sounds fucking pretentious, but you know what I mean. I wanted sure. to do a good job talking about this thing I care about. Yeah. Um. And actually so yeah, it's this is basically like an hour and a half long chat about veganism and how it connects to other political and social movements. Um and it's not really like a funny episode. It's not it's not a jokes episode.
0: I don't know if it's super heavy from memory. I mean, I don't know, it's been a month yeah, or so since it was. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um and look as as with anybody who talks about something that's close to their heart like I missed a whole bunch of stuff mm. that I wanted to talk about um and I there were two I wanted to just like get on the record here in the in the re-release version one is that I talk a little bit about the connections between uh disability activism and animal liberation and one thing I don't mention there uh, in the episode is that a lot of vegan activism has the really ableist undercurrent, you know, criticizing people for not uh, eating vegan when, in fact, some people do actually require that, um, you know, for their health. So that's one thing. Uh, and plus all the the gross affiliations with, like, health movements mm-hmm. and stuff. You know, go vegan because it'll make you skinny. Like, blah, shut up. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to mention is that I, I bring up this uh, feminist vegan uh academic called Carol j. Adams, and I do her really dirty in in this like i like say one kind of minor thing that she touches on, and then nothing else about what she believes right um yeah but she's I actually i don't remember she,
0: that specifically, but I should listen to the episode again
1: yeah i mean i uh, I give her basically a pretty poor description of how she describes uh feminism as being connected to mm-hmm. veganism in her mind mm-hmm. but uh if you you know if you look her up. Listen to a podcast episode with her, read anything by her. She's incredibly eloquent. It makes a really compelling case about how um, especially uh, masculinity is kind of constructed out of meat eating mm. um, in a really interesting way. Which is I, th- I think it's something that's pretty intuitive for most people. Like, you know, meat is always promoted as being like super manly.
0: I also just constantly feel like bringing up epic mealtime. I feel like it was a really important cultural phenomenon that's just <laughs> like gone from the public memory and
1: uh it's it, just left the the like the association of epicness with bacon that's its cultural legacy yeah even and if we and, don't remember there's
0: this whole uh, cluster of things that it it, it drew together
2: but yeah
1: mm. anyway uh i just wanted to say those two things up top nice. uh, i hope you enjoy this chat is there anything else you wanted to say before we dive into the episode noon no let's do it
0: all right Oh wait, no one thing. Okay, actually, sorry. <laughs> if you live in Melbourne, there's this really great place called. This is an unpaid ad, by the way. This is I'm, I'm, we haven't been approached by them at all. Vincent's uh, Food Mart. Vegetarian. I'm pretty sure it, it's a vegetarian butcher slash grocer. Uh, it's on Berkeley Street in Footscray, right near the highway. um It's really fucking good. Go get some like barbecue buns, um, fake duck, all sorts of good shit.
1: Yeah, shout out, Vincent's. Also, we forgot to shout out our new patron that we oh, just got. Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah, which is that's right. Uh, paid advertising,
0: like really, essentially. Especially yes. in this case. They they did take advantage of the fact that it, it was going to be read aloud.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, so we'd like to send a big thank you to... I wonder how long Patreon will let your name be. Oh, gee, this is getting really long, and I think this bit is getting less funny. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much thank for signing you. up. We disagree, the bit remains very good funny the whole way through yep also before we start the episode uh-huh. we're doing the, a review drive which oh, yeah, yeah 90 to 100 reviews on apple Podcasts. please go over there and give us that five stars if you haven't done it already we really appreciate it okay finally here's the episode
0: hey everybody and welcome back to bonus snack pod the podcast where we talk about you know some shit for like an hour um Thank idea. you all for coming along today. Uh, thank you to the new patrons who have signed up. This is your first bonus
1: el- episode. Welcome. um, Zach, how are you doing? Yeah, not, not too bad. Got my uh, lemon and ginger tea. Nice. Uh, Dante is in the studio, so the whole room smells like him, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, potentially very appropriate for this episode. Yeah.
0: Uh, I record in my bedroom, which is also Bagel's bedroom, so my entire life just smells like him and I, I no longer notice it. Um but he's also in the studio, so yeah. He uh he spent <laughs> this morning shrieking at our landlord uh th- through you know, a barrier, but um so he's all tucked out now.
1: Uh, it's tough being such a vocal dickhead. Yeah. It's yeah. True. Yeah, I think that's Dante's completely passed out as well, and I think it's because yeah, he did a lot of shrieks himself this morning. Hmm. Uh but yeah, so our bonus episodes if you've never listened to one before uh sometimes can be a bit looser and the way that we do things is that we try to take suggestions from our um 690 patrons and up. Um and this was a suggestion we got uh from Leah, host of Loud Angry and Not Sorry, shout out. Friend Actually, of the show, like, friend confidant, um, member Friend of confidant member of Inner Sanctum. Lost
0: Snack Pods in
1: a Sanctum, yeah. Um she suggested this uh Oh, it was like last year, I think. And uh, she said, I would like to hear more about veganism from a non-entitled wanker perspective.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, which, as I was telling Noon just before I recorded, I don't know if I can necessarily provide that, but um, I'll do what I can. Mm.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, I said it just as you took off your headphones. Uh, I don't think you're an entitled wanker, Zach. So I think that you're reasonably well-placed to attempt this challenge. Um, Thanks, Noon.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, so... I've been vegan for, like, well I don't know, probably somewhere between five and ten years. Um, probably at the, the higher end of that. And I've been working at what you might call, like, an animal advocacy organization, like, in my professional life for three or four years. I make videos for, like, an animal rights org. Um, so I've been fairly, I guess, immersed in it. Um, in like the mainstream style of animal rights advocacy um, for a while now, but also doing a, like a fair amount of digging around in terms of more radical uh, animal liberation thinking and discourse as well. Um, but, so, and so for me, giving a fuck about animals uh, well-being is, I consider it to be an integral part of my politics. Um, Whereas I think that generally speaking, veganism is perceived as like a lifestyle or a diet, uh, uh, or, uh, you know, something like that, as opposed to a political position. Mm. So well,
0: listeners may recall from our like episodes where we interviewed each other, you know, it's probably a year ago now, um, more that, uh, you know, Well, I gave a number of origins of where my caring about politics came from, because I kept remembering things and being like, oh, maybe it was this. (laughs) Um, But uh, one important thing was that I was vegetarian from when I was about 14 um, until now, um, with, you know, many, many slips. But like, you know, I've thought of myself as a vegetarian that whole time and um, was vegan for, yeah, four years in the middle there somewhere. Hmm. Um did the
1: vegetarianism originate with your Jewish youth group?
0: Yeah, sort of. So um
1: it, it was like a vegan, it was a, a vegetarian it, it was an environmentally
0: group, kind of. oriented group. Right, right. That was like our thing. Everyone called us hippies and like yeah. Um And they were right too. Yes. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, so we were vegetarian officially for most of the time I was there. That was because it's easier to make things kosher if there's no meat involved. Mm. Um, and so even we easier just, if there's no milk, uh, no, you only need to get rid of one, but yeah, I mean, yes, <laughs> uh, I realized that was a vegan joke. Yeah. Um, but, uh, then at some point when I was like 17 or something, I'd, I'd been there for, you know, a decade and we changed it to being officially ideological vegetarian and there was a huge uproar from the meat eaters um but i've been vegetarian <laughs> for some time by that point and like what would happen is i'd go to camp wouldn't eat meat for a week and then i'd come back home and be like i don't want to eat meat for a while and my parents would be like no worries um because my sister nice who was older it. had been vegetarian for Ages, presumably, right. also because of. Uh, She'd the already youth blazed the trail. Exactly, so got, yeah. Dad got had got already figured out privilege. how to cook halloumi. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, so.
1: Spoiler, it's, it's not hard. Yeah. Uh, and other,
0: <laughs> you know, non meat things. Means. But, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and then, you know, a week later, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to eat meat again. And, like, I'd always. I'd kind of meant to be vegetarian for a few years before. And then. um one time I just, like, came back and it stuck. Um, yeah, and that was, like, a really important part of my identity and my emerging politics. Yeah. Uh, well,
1: that's how... That was my introduction to vegetarianism, veganism. Yeah, uh, was for me. Was, yeah, exactly. So I, I I trace it directly back to you. Mm. Um, but as you say, uh, as time's gone on, I've kind of like maybe, like, become... I don't know what you would call it, more... The student has Hard surpassed line? the master. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or like, the, uh, like, I'm definitely a fairly strict vegan these yeah, days, yeah, and you are yeah. not. No, that's And right. that's kind of where we find ourselves. But that our uh discovery of and learning about uh animals and, and their rights has been, like, deeply entwined in our totally. relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for a long time.
0: I probably have told this story before, but... um We were living together with another friend of ours, Lou, um, who has done a couple potlucks for us. And um, I had. uh, You two were real, like, bacon bros. It was like the epic mealtime era. Yeah, actually, um, I just
1: got a Facebook memory today of the time that we made candied whiskey bacon. Yeah. And. It was disappointing,
0: as I recall. I didn't have any, but.
1: Yeah, it wasn't amazing. But you could see the joy on our faces in those photos of just, like, look at this ridiculous thing we've done. Totally. (laughs) With bacon and whiskey. Yeah, um, yeah, it's very cute. But sorry, go
0: on. I, I thought Lewis was an easier touch than you, as far as the vegetarianism thing goes. And I'd kind of been working on him for a couple of years. And <laughs> yeah. uh, one night, drunkenly out on Brunswick Street, uh, Brunswick Road. I haven't been out in a long time. Um, the uh, it would have uh, been Brunswick Street. Brunswick Street, yeah. Uh, he was like, um, you know, fine, fine. I'll I'll do it. I'll, I'll be vegetarian. Uh, very drunkenly, we went and got a celebratory falafel. Uh, and then, like three days later, I got up and uh, came into the kitchen, and you were making baked beans as you were wont to do. And uh, you turned around very gruffly and said, "Decided to become vegan," and turned back to your beans. And I was
1: like, "Nice." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah you, osmotically, you worked on me too. Um, and yeah, lose vegetarian to this day. Uh, yeah, still eats cheese. Um. But yeah, look, I mean, and and it's like natural, I guess, that our conversation has kind of gone towards, uh, diet, right? This is how most people conceptualize caring about animals, thinking about animals, mm, mm-hmm. doing stuff for animals. It's almost always framed through what you eat. And, and that is absolutely, for many people, the main way that they relate to animals is yeah. that they either eat them or don't, or they eat their, uh, you know, their Products secretions or, yeah. or they don't. Yeah. yeah. Um... But, uh, I do think it kind of can narrow the scope of conversation around these issues because totally. for a number of reasons and the kind of main one is that, uh, and I was searching for this term before, when I was trying to say people often conceptualize veganism as a dietary thing, a lifestyle thing, or a consumerist thing. That was the word I couldn't find. Sure. And, and that's, you know, not just people who aren't vegan, that is the way that veganism in, in the kind of mainstream, like in its mainstream iteration is largely expressed as this excitement about new vegan products. Mm, you, can go and you, mm-hmm. can, you, you can buy vegan Magnums now, um, or you can buy the Beyond Burger or whatever. Um, and so that's a very kind of obviously individualized approach to understanding yep. this issue, um, uh, in terms of what are the personal choices that you make about it and i think that that's really important and i'm interested mm. in digging into it mm. but i often think that that is kind of the point at which most people's um how to how to how to express it political like engagement or, with the concept yeah, of th- animals exactly or, their conceptual engagement with yeah. yeah kind of i think often will end at that point um but i'm personally i see many other various Uh, strong links to other political issues and other forms Mm. of political expression Mm. tied up in uh, the way that we think about animals. And it's kind of a through line of the podcast that I think it's true of both of us, but especially of me, I'm very interested in uh, hidden ideology. Um, I'm really interested in what kind of ideas are hidden in everyday language and concepts that we don't examine. Mm. Um, and when you start to dig into the ideology of eating animals uh, and animal agriculture in general, and generally the the idea of there being a dividing line between humans and non-human animals, there is so much uh, unexamined ideological content there that I think a lot of people don't actually realize that Mm. they are uh replicating or that they are you know they don't realize that they've been indoctrinated in in certain ways Mm. Mm. um because yeah i mean maybe that's not a bad place to start i guess in terms of breaking down some of the more uh radical i suppose understandings of uh human animal relationships human non-human which that's a term i'll probably use a fair amount it's fairly self-explanatory but like the point is to remind people when speaking about this stuff that humans are animals too yeah and that what might seem like a natural distinction Mm. between humans and non-human animals is actually totally conceptual totally confected totally created by humans and to track that like the development of that idea reveals a lot about the ideological underpinnings of creating a division between humans and other animal species. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, And there are various terms that people use to describe this, which I feel some days fairly comfortable with and some days not. Sure, sure. I know that. Speciesism. Yep. Yeah. Speciesism is a common, is a fairly, is one that's kind of becoming uh known um, it's fairly, in the general yeah, it's fairly like, in vogue yeah. Yep. yeah and i felt pretty uncomfortable with it for a while hmm. um but thinking about it more i think it's actually a very helpful term and some of the reasons that i was hesitant i suppose to incorporate in, into my language i kind of examined further and decided that i didn't necessarily agree with just a note listener that it started raining uh at both of our houses at the same time so if you hear a bit of that on the track that's why. Um, yeah. So I, I might get into this, uh, a little bit later, but the idea, you know, the term speciesism obviously is kind of designed to remind you of racism, um, uh, mm-hmm. and other, yep. you know, forms of bigotry yep. basically or injustice. Um, and a lot of people get very squeamish about the comparison between yep. human suffering and non-human suffering. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting to dig into why that makes people uncomfortable. Um, Can I just say, this, yeah. is,
0: this is probably a very specific instance of it that might not be that helpful in illuminating the whole, but th- there's this really big argument that I seem to get into on the internet a lot. I mean, I get into a lot of arguments, so I guess that's unsurprising. But about whether <laughs> insects or spiders feel pain. And mm. people are always like, no, they have a different nervous system. Mammals feel pain. Maybe birds feel pain or whatever, but insects, they have a different thing going on. It's not pain or like whatever. And then you're like, mm. okay, but when you injure it, it doesn't like it and it tries to make it stop. And it's really obvious
2: that it's hurting. Yes. And like, why would you expect like... I,
0: I, I don't know, I feel like pain is probably one of those things that gets built in very early on in the evolutionary life of a species. Um, and yeah, absolutely.
1: I think the- you actually have touched on something very mm. illuminating. And this is about... Uh, it, it's kind of one of the fundamental conflicts in contemporary animal liberation or animal justice thinking. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that is, on what basis do you care about animals? And for a long time... Uh, it's been based on this kind of utilitarian philosophy mm-hmm, or ethic, mm-hmm. which was developed in large part by an Australian philosopher called Peter Singer, who I'm mm-hmm. sure many people are familiar with his name and some of his work. He wrote a book called Animal Liberation in, I think it was 1975, and that is considered by most people to, in large part, have kicked off the contemporary uh, yeah, animal liberation movement. Sure. Not cool. that, you know, and that's obviously for one thing, in a Western context. People yep, have cared yep. about animals and yep. their feelings and their experiences for a long time. Yep. And this is going to be it's a like, fairly, It's like what like, people say
0: about Silent Spring or whatever. It's like, yeah, these books are crucial in like changing how we conceptualize an issue. That doesn't mean that there wasn't people working on those sorts of issues or aware of them or caring about them before, but like that they, they changed their sort of collective consciousness about the Yeah, and,
1: and really it's like... Post the advent of industrial animal agriculture, yeah, yeah, that's when you know, the, like the the human and an, the human animal relationship fundamentally changes mm, at that point, mm. and animal liberation is a response to that new environment. You know, totally. if you're ta- if you're going back far enough, the idea of human animal distinction actually doesn't exist in, in a lot of other cultures, earlier cultures. Um, you know, the idea of of humans being a thing separate from the environment who get to use it and control it as as they will is a relatively new idea. Mm, mm. So... Just one point
0: on on about how, like, industrialization changed, you know, our relationship with animals. Um, Prior to industrialization, duck eggs were the main type of eggs that people consumed. I'm sorry to take this back to a diet thing when I know you're, like trying to move away from that but like um no, not but necessarily. ducks don't do well i mean nothing does well but like they stop laying eggs when they're in close confinement um and so there's a like hard limit on the number of ducks per square foot you can get uh while still producing eggs and so there was a huge advertising campaign to be like chicken eggs duck eggs are gross and weird yeah. why would you eat them because uh, chickens you will you laying back... eggs under stress
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. If you trace back the origin of almost any super popular animal product, you'll find uh, a capitalist logic behind it, uh, and that's to do with uh, and chicken meat as well is a great example. You know, right. we consume, generally speaking, on average, and especially in a country like Australia, which has one of the highest per capita meat consumption rates of uh, right. in, in the world. Right. Uh, You know, we're consuming sometimes more chicken in a day on average than like our ancestors ancestors would have in a year. Wow. Like you know, if you're eating a lot of chicken in a day, but like, <laughs> sure, sure. But some people do. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and it used to be this kind of, uh, uh even, uh, as recently as like 70 years ago, it was a mm. relatively, it was like a, a, special occasions thing. Then comes yep. the advent of industrialized animal agriculture and the capacity to produce much more, uh, you know, animal product at a cheaper rate and suddenly consumption skyrockets. So this idea right. of, you know, oh, there's this demand for these products. Well, actually, it's It's, created. A, it's a demand. It's a, it's a demand that's created. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, not to say that, like, humans haven't eaten animal protein and animal mm. products, you know. Like, throughout history, but in a very, very, very different way. Yeah. Well,
0: something a lot of Marxists talk about is the way that in modern society, basically, the only way to perform an identity is through consumption. And like you were saying that before about, you know, veganism gets put through this consumerist lens. But the sort of flip side to, like, you create your identity by consuming products is that you can only consume ones that have been created. And so everyone's identity gets sort of formed in response to the options that are available for them to perform it. And yeah, anyway, I don't know. That's sort of a sidebar, but I think it's relevant.
1: I think it is very relevant. And I, I, I want to, you know, my point largely here is to point out how these various other kind of economic and political systems that we understand to influence our other Mm. political our our outlook on other political and social issues are not only at play when it comes to animals, but actually like turbocharged when it comes to animal issues. And that's what I actually think it's a fucking fascinating topic for that reason. Mm. Mm. Um, So we kind of, and and very pleasantly, but we diverted slightly yes. from where I was taking that initially, which was this uh, what you know, that point you'd illuminated before in, in terms of when you were talking about pain. Yep. And how we conceptualize, mm. you know, animals—the yep. issue of how and, we really yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, and and kind of at the root of that is this question about on what basis do you care about animals? And so, yep. a lot of the contemporary animal liberation movement is founded on this utilitarian idea kind of put forward by Peter Singer, which is based on, you know, what you can sort of scientifically or philosophically prove that animals experience, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got various levels of difficulty of proving, you know, similarity to human experience right, in, right. in other animals. Obviously, it's very easily observable improvable in primates yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. something uh, an animal like a spider you can have a harder harder time yeah kind of bringing some kind of like what empathy you might intuitive
0: empathy or something well no oh, okay that, sorry so
1: that's the that's the flip side right and that's okay. the other basis on which to base uh, to that's the other basis on which to build an ethic of caring about interesting, animals interesting. is is this what's described as the, the feminist ethic of care. And so there's this other right. other school which emerges sort of 10, 15 years after Peter Singer's Animal Liberation becomes a thing, largely spearheaded by this um, uh, writer and academic, feminist writer and academic called Josephine Donovan. And she basically makes the case that we don't need to scientifically or philosophically prove some kind of universal truth about consciousness or self-awareness or existence in order to observe that animals don't like pain. They avoid it. They feel joy. And we like, if we actually look at them and try to understand what they are telling us, like it's all right there already. So it's this kind of um, uh, rejection of this intellectualized, objective, style of ethics and philosophy where you try to kind of ob- objectively prove <clears throat> that animals yeah. you know have self awareness and, and can experience pain well, versus th- don- it's really interesting there's
0: this distinction which i 'm i'm not aware of i my like I have not engaged with theory about this stuff for a very long time, not deliberately I just sort of like huffed a lot of pretty entry level stuff when I was you know sixteen to twenty and then haven 't thought about it again but um cool. uh, I always sort of thought one of the advantages of being vegetarian and vegan was that i didn't have to worry about it if you know what i mean people because people would always send me like earthlings or like other videos that are like trauma inducing videos of you know mass slaughter and i was always like i don't want to see this that's why i'm vegetarian (laughs) a bit yeah. like <laughs> have you watched this? But um my my what I was gonna say was it's interesting there's this distinction between the uh sort of rationalist um mm. singer utilitarianism and this like as you put it feminist ethic of care. Because it seems to me that when you start with either one of them, the other one is like really obviously entailed. And it seems odd that there's a big gap between them. Cause like why well, would th- it matter it, to prove that people on... feel pain like we when we see pain they then take, we can rationalize it and if we can rationalize it we should empathize like i don't know i I feel like
1: well yeah. the, ultimately they take you in very different directions sure and sure. if you follow peter singer's line of thinking that way lies some really ableist thinking as yep. well yeah because what you kind of end up doing mm. is creating this like ranking system for like. How much uh, a being or an individual can be aware of itself and what's going on, and how much you know, how much their experiences matter, right? And so Peter Singer is somebody who has argued, you know, for the right, for example, and I guess a bit of a content warning here for some ableist, uh, comments. Um, Peter Singer is someone who has argued like for the rights of of parents to for to like kill a, a newborn child on the basis that the child has a severe disability mm-hmm. because his like utilitarian outlook is that that child will you know experience uh will never be able to experience the full gamut of human of uh human experience Sure, sure. i and, mean
0: I, I i used to be a very committed utilitarian um and then i when i went to uni i like engaged with a lot more sophisticated critiques of it. And I think there are some really sophisticated critiques of it, but I think there are some really sophisticated models of it that can avoid them. And, like, I think the fact that Peter Singer is into murdering babies, uh, it, it, like, I don't know, uh, that's a loaded way of putting that, obviously, but, like, um, like that doesn't mean that uh, a, a careful utilitarian wouldn't have a more thoughtful thing on that. But I also think that, like, any other formalized system of ethics is inevitably going to have problems and contradictions and, uh, omissions. But like, I think the, the, the more like, I don't know if, if I was writing an essay about the problem with the utilitarian view of, um, uh, animal suffering or whatever, Mm -hmm. I, the issue that I would talk about is a utility monster, which is someone who enjoys something so much that it outweighs other people's suffering. Mm. Um, and so then if there's someone who just fucking loves eating chicken, that might be like worth more than the suffering of the chickens or whatever. Um,
1: yeah, I think, but I mean, yes. there's like many other problems with, with it as mm. well as, uh, like one of my main issues with it is the idea that there's this kind of universalizable, uh, right, approach right. to like how to value life and well, versus... Yeah the feminist ethic of care, which is about, it's not a universal thing. It's about looking at the individual experiences of each of these beings Mm. and trying to, uh, care for them and understand them Mm. on an individual level. And it's, it's a, it's a different way of valuing life, Mm. um, which I think is ultimately just a much more useful. For sure. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with that.
0: That's, Uh, I think that was why I ultimately abandoned utilitarianism is it's basically like, well, we can imagine that maths would solve this ethical question, but we can't do that maths. So, eh. Um, yeah, So yes, uh, having, yeah. But also,
1: I mean, utilitarianism often in my experience and definitely in the case of like someone like Singer, I think is often bending over backwards to try and be as apolitical as possible. Mm -mm. Whereas a feminist ethic of care in, in mm. feminist ethic in understanding animals politically situates your ethical perspective in a way that I, that I have personally found super instructive yeah. and has yeah. had a massive influence on the rest of my politics. Mm. So uh, that's the other kind of thing that I want to, well, in, th- this is kind of where I was heading in a broad sense sure. of this conversation is that generally speaking, I think veganism uh, or animal liberation is kind of understood to be an apolitical thing. There are lots of people within the animal liberation movement who are otherwise extraordinarily conservative, or, conservative. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, Just liberals. Absolutely. That's, yep. that's right. Yeah. The, the full <laughs> gamut of, of shitheads, uh, yep. you know, <laughs> caring about animals does, is not an indicator of anything else about your politics, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, um, and, and also the kind of mainstream animal rights movement is very invested in the idea of, Depoliticizing caring about animals because sure. of their consumerist approach, where it's like the the, uh-huh. you know, the 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 mechanism for change that they drive for is you put is as an many economic vegan one products that relies
0: yeah. on like people not changing society and instead taking part in society's logic.
1: Yeah, I, like the deeply capitalist, capitalist understanding of how logic. to make yes, change, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. but also. I think there's a sort of fundamental misunderstanding of capitalist me- of mechanisms in there mm. because if you understand that like the meat industry itself created the demand for itself, the idea that you can just kind of like put a couple of alternatives out there and mm. that people will naturally gravitate towards those mm. I think is at best naive. Well, it um,
0: makes me like, obviously there's a lot of, if not facetious, then at least extremely contentious, like, analogies that you can draw with other issues or, like, other industries. But, like, I don't know if there's a huge push for, like, an ethical tobacco industry, you know? Like, I don't know if people are going out to buy, like, the good cigarettes or whatever. Or, like, Well, or people... that buying
1: electric cars is not going to solve climate change. Like, we're talking about the ways in which buying individual, electric cars individual isn't choice... Traffic,
0: maybe. Whatever, I don't know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. also that- It's not going to do either. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then, like, you know, we're talking about individualized mm. consumerist responses to yes, systemic yes, problems. Yes. And there is no systemic problem more systemic than animal agriculture, from my perspective. Obviously, that's, you know, whatever. People can dispute that. That's fine.
0: Um, but, yeah, what about, like, race? You other get systems into that? yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> well yeah. yeah yeah exactly well I, I think um that's maybe the wrong way to put it it's the most kind of like or one of the most industrialized and capitalized i see I forms see. of uh of oppression yeah so yeah. that makes know,
0: sense yes
1: yeah But look again here; it's very easy to fall into this trap of, "Oh, well, uh, you know, are you comparing it to this other issue of human suffering?" Right, right, right. And no, it's not about comparing. Right, it's about caring. Well, it's not about comparing the experience of suffering under one form of oppression or another. It's not about comparing those two things. Comparing the experience of racism and speciesism. It's about understanding that actually the same systems are complicit Mm, mm, in those forms of oppression mm. and finding those links and understanding them. I think it's
0: like a a sophisticated versus a naive intersectionalism, right? Like a naive intersectionalism ends up with the oppression Olympics that we see on the internet all the time of people being like, well, you've got this type of oppression that you suffer from, or I suffer from this other one, and one of us needs to be right here. And that means one of our axes of oppression has to be more important but as you right. say, the sophisticated or like more productive way of looking at it would be to see, well, these actually connect in interesting and horrifying and, ways and, these and are that the ways can lead us to resist it in more effective ways as well
1: yeah, exactly. This is the way in which our our freedom or our liberation is actually intertwined um, yep. and so let me kind of try to run through a few of what I see as the conceptual. Connections, I suppose, between uh, other issues of, uh, you know, uh, other instances of oppression or social injustice or however you want to describe it, and Mm -hmm. uh, animal animal oppression. oppression. So, I mean, uh, I've mentioned already that, you know, a lot of radical contemporary thinking around animals is rooted in feminism. Um, So you've got there kind of uh, an expansion of feminist politics and feminist ethics are then kind of is applied to animals as well as humans, which mm-hmm. I think is very interesting conceptually, but the, you know, there's also kind of a few more direct connections. Um, one, uh, what's a more appropriate word I can use than, um, seminal important, one very important, um, feminist writer, uh, uh who wrote, who wrote on animals is called Carol J Adams. And she wrote a book called the sexual politics of meat Oh, I want to say it was in the mid 80s something sure. like that. And uh that book is all about her kind of drawing connections between uh yeah, sexism and misogyny and the way that animals are conceptualized and treated.
0: I mean that again just makes me think of Epic Meal Time. Um right I mean, well yeah. the,
1: the the idea of like um the sexualization of animal products you know that like are you a thigh man are you a breast man like you know get mm. the double d turkey burger like like yeah or breast, uh, like
0: yeah or, 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 or t- getting slammed at the um double meat palace yeah
1: <laughs> yeah or like the um I guess that's just- the 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 way that women are objectified is often using the the language of uh animal products mm, you know mm-hmm. he looked to be like a piece of meat you mm, know mm-hmm that that sort of like that there's a, a fairly direct rhetorical overlap in it's funny
0: i've noticed in the last couple of weeks you've used that phrase in our show like which? multiple times a piece of red meat and i'm always like huh. oh, right. uh not not having thought about this like uh <laughs> sexual politics of meat issue just about i'm like ha ha
1: well that's like, red meat is something slightly different but yeah <laughs> point nevertheless taken um so uh one of the other things that one of the other connections that I've talked about uh, I talked about it when we last chatted about this in those interviews that you mentioned was mm. the um ideological and, and conceptual uh overlap between white supremacy and speciesism yeah. so this is yeah an area like i say makes, uh, it makes people uh people get pretty upset about it and mm-hmm. often that's I think reasonable because these yeah. comparisons are often deployed in a very white supremacist fashion by totally. vegans when they compare what happens to animals in industrial systems to slavery or to the Holocaust or these kinds of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And people like, are, you know, throwing humans under the bus in order to make your comparison. Yeah. Um, which, so, you know, and, uh, an a, a contemporary, uh, like writer who I'd point People towards if they want to hear more about this, is someone called Christopher Sebastian. Um, and he wrote a piece that was called, I think it was called, like, The Language of Slavery and Animal Rights, or something like that. And he cool. writes about this experience of accompanying his very progressive white friend to his white friend's house, where his mum cooks them a meal and they have this conversation about veganism. And then the white friend drops the slavery comparison. And suddenly the whole lunch becomes about the mum trying to avoid being associated with racism, uh, you know, by extension and the sun feeling very like uh, awkward about having said this thing. And suddenly like the conversation is actually all about this uh, black guy with him. Christopher Sebastian is an African-American writer. Um, and suddenly the conversation is uh, all about, it's actually about whiteness and, you know, their relationship to it and like white people kind of being like, Oh no, no, I'm, I'm not like that. So that's like, that's a, a very compelling okay. um, uh, example of like how not to make those comparisons. Right. But there has been, and Christopher Sebastian among others is one proponent of this, uh, of this idea, which initially I came across in the writing of uh, two African-American sisters called Afco and Silco, who wrote a book called Afroism, A-P-H-R-O-I-S-M. And I talked about this, uh, like I said, in a, when when you interviewed me. But, you know, essentially they argue that speciesism is foundational to white supremacy. That Mm, the idea of mm. there being a distinction between human and non-human animals is really, really important to the the conceptualization of white supremacy. Because basically what white supremacy does is it ranks humans on a scale from most human to least human Mm -hmm. with white people at the top And the further away you get from white people, the less human you are, until you get down to actual, literal, non-human animals.
0: Like Jews. (laughs) Sorry, as in, uh, in Nazi Germany, (laughs) they were considered to be literal, non-human animals. uh, Like, equivalent to rats. And like, I mean, I I did deliberately say that in a shocking way, because like... But that's exactly the point that you're making is that white supremacy just like just draws that line just a little bit higher than the exactly. average non active white supremacist,
1: yeah, yeah. And, you know, and you can uh, obviously you know that that functions uh in chattel slavery of course you know, the, yeah, that yeah. black people are kind of seen not as humans but as yeah, property yeah, yeah. um I decided that- to go
0: with the uh, one that was about. <laughs> My family history, not about yes. black people, but yes, yes. Mm.
1: But I mean, the, like I think you can. But see you're right. The same thing. Yeah, yeah. and uh, as well as here, like the in, in terms of the white supremacist uh, colonial state in Australia and the way that Indigenous yep. people were kind of <clears throat> uh, well treated were as to. fauna. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's like that. I I think that that's a very compelling argument mm. uh, in the sense that in order to really understand white supremacy and unpick it that you actually have to understand speciesism as well yeah right and so i think that lays bare how you know when when we discuss these things it's not that i want to compare the experience of being oppressed as uh, as a human by you know by racism by homophobia by any other mm-hmm. form of uh structural oppression with the experience of being oppressed as an animal, but in fact, it's these systems and ideologies that are making the comparison in the first place. Yeah. And I want to point that out. Yeah. Um, but like that's what I said before about you try to make this distinction between comparing the experience and comparing mm-hmm. the the systems of oppression mm-hmm. and seeing mm-hmm. that there there's commonalities there. But, yeah, I mean, look, this is an area that I think people still kind of get squeamish about um sometimes for good reason but also because the idea of you know comparing uh, of understanding that animals and humans can sometimes be oppressed by the same systems can hit a little bit too hard. Yeah. A little, little little bit little too close to home as well. Because these are kind of it's kind of a difficult thing a difficult concept to absorb. Like if you if you decide and we didn't really get into this at the beginning. Oh, I meant to sort of open with a spiel about this. But we sort of blew right past it. But the idea of like once you accept the idea that like animals' experience is worth caring about, that Mm -hmm. their lives value, that their pain and their joy Mm -hmm. and their love for each other is valuable, like you're you're letting in an absolutely incomprehensible amount of horror into the world, yes, when, uh, yes. in, you know, into your perspective yeah. of the world when you do that.
0: I think that's really true. I think that is a big part of why people are resistant to it.
1: I think so. I, I think, you know, part of the reason why it's it's so easy to kind of squish veganism down purely into what you choose to eat or not to eat mm. is because at the end of the day, it is one of the most direct forms of participation in a system of oppression that like you can observe you know it's it's yeah that's just a very very concrete action that you take every day and like i say it's definitely not the only way to engage with these ideas but it is it's every day for people and uh it's like you know people have this real block i think uh when it comes to sexuality and the the intersection of, like, sexuality and racism, for example. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just what I'm attracted to. How could that be ideological? It's like, well, yeah, you know, like, you need to unpick, like, how all of Mm. these things... You've you've, you've sort of absorbed all of this unconsciously. Mm.
0: Um, It reminds me of... um, There's a bunch of people who I know like this who, when I start talking to them about communism or whatever, they're like, yeah, but look, um, you know... Things in Australia were pretty shit, like, working conditions-wise or whatever, and now it's way better, and, like, um, capitalism can improve things, but they have to ignore the fact that we export so much misery in the form of production to Mm. the third world, Mm. and things have gotten better for people living within the borders of Australia, I think, pretty Mm. undeniably, and, like, maybe across the globe, though that's, I think, really disputed Um, but like, it's, it's because if you acknowledge that buying some crappy plastic bullshit in Australia means someone is suffering from industrial poisoning and being underpaid in Sri Lanka, like Mm. suddenly
1: everything that you do is fucking horrifying. Um, and this is a really, I'm really glad that you brought this up because I've got one other thing I want to talk about before Mm -hmm. I get onto this. But this would have. This is a really nice uh, segue into a, a conversation about uh, the politics of sight and where sure. where oppression and suffering happens and how we are shielded from it. Um, because and this is what I'm saying. When it comes to like this is a, a, a in one sense a fairly abstract idea when it comes to global capitalism and right, production right. of goods and that kind of thing when it comes to animals it's really fucking direct it's like, like oh i'm hidden... holding
0: a part of its corpse what, you,
1: or... right but it, by the time it gets to you it's totally sanitized totally yeah, clean yeah. totally uh disassociated with the animal yeah. that it once the, the, the that they once were uh, and it's all hidden in in slaughterhouses and even within the slaughterhouses okay i guess we're doing this section now the even within the slaughterhouses. The killing itself is sequestered often slaughterhouses, especially large industrial slaughterhouses in america where they're you know they 're churning through thousands of animals an hour often in the case of chickens it's like hundreds of animals an hour in the case of say cows or pigs. The person who actually does the killing is often like they 're designed so that that person is not witnessed by anyone else within the slaughterhouse right it basically uh they they're hidden from sight because the act of actually rendering this conscious living being from living to dead is a deeply psychologically harmful thing for a it human makes, to do makes me think once. of
0: fucking um you know executioners wearing hoods
1: it, yeah. you, i mean uh, yeah you we could go very deep on on, yeah. on 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 just the imagery of this of this stuff so, um sorry go i on. Oh, i've
0: i've kind of got a few different thoughts that I want to ask. One thing is just about this issue of intersection again. I just wanted to point out one that when you told me I was like horrified, but not surprised, mm. um, which is that people who work in slaughterhouses do domestic violence at a far higher rate than the average population. Um, and also like suffer Obviously, like PTSD and a bunch of like they're, they're traumatized as well, but also yeah. but like there's this intersection between like a very like direct line between capitalism killing animals to spouses Humanism. being abused. Um, yeah, and it's and like there's... it's it's a literal one step from there to there. Um,
1: yeah, absolutely. And like so, working in in, gener- in in a general sense, working in a slaughterhouse, working in in animal agriculture you know the very the vast vast majority of jobs in animal agriculture are fucking horrible jobs not only are they extraordinarily dangerous psychologically damaging as you point out mm. they are you know very very low paid and mm. often occupied by people with uh sort of with, with like ambiguous citizenship status right, for example right. that's really true in the Oof. US but it's also very true here when, you know, a lot of this push to get workers into regional centers, mm. a lot of that is, is to try and get workers it, or a large part of that is to try and get immigrant workers into slaughterhouses because it's jobs that people, nobody wants to do. They're horrible yeah. work. Yeah. But if, you know, if you're in a position where you, ha- you like you, you can't say no to a job, you're put in this place and, you know, the rate at which people suffer workplace injuries, horrific fucking workplace mm. injuries in mm. those of environments. Course. Yeah, I because- mean. So aside from anything else, if you want the most direct connection to Marxist politics, it's a fucking workers' rights issue. Yeah. A massive workers' rights issue. But it's a very, very closed industry. They and you know, we all have this very kind of idealized view about how animals are raised, the conditions that they live in Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's like a cow
0: standing in the grass and then something something, now I have a hamburger. Um
1: I yep. think, yeah, I, the average person has no fucking idea what a farmed animal's life is like, and and that's exactly why bring-
0: those videos are so sort of uh, why they're used so much. Those uh, yeah. like upsetting ones of yeah. footage of slaughter uh, because it introduces sight, and I know um, there are constant legal battles going on with like you know former workers or activists or whatever who are trying to get footage of work sites
1: yeah mm. they're called ag gag laws ag-gag, Um sure. where basically right. it's made it, it, it's they turn it into a crime to go and film undercover footage at um, at a slaughterhouse or 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 an animal farm because they, they like they 're terrified of the reality of the situation that these animals grow up in becoming publicly known, and some people are so ideologically invested in the idea of eating meat that even that doesn't work on them yeah yeah. but i think for a lot like a lot a lot of people it's deeply shocking yeah and like you know i'm making some kind of broad comments and 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 assumptions about you know the population people who eat meat but you've been working in the industry
0: for several years and you know the statistics on it and stuff
1: i've got a pretty good sense of of this in a general way, especially you know in Australia, I think. But uh, I just wanted to say that I like you know. Don't mean for this to sound uh, judgmental or accusatory. Mm, mm. Um, I think that the systems that deliberately obscure this reality from people are deeply, deeply powerful at a material and a conceptual level. So mm. you know, well yeah, I mean. When- Sorry. Go on. When people don't share my perspective on it, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not like, oh, it makes you a bad person or you're ethically abhorrent for totally. eating animals. I just think that uh, for a lot of people, it's it's fairly unexamined mm. um, yeah. at a at a at a literal level, but also, you know, at a level at an ethical level.
0: I was just gonna say, I think um, you're you're really good about that, and um, I think yeah, uh, you do a good job of not being a dick about people not having the same practice <laughs> as you or the same theoretical understanding as you or whatever. I think you do a good job with that. So, yeah.
1: Um, thanks. Well, I I want to try and as, as Leah puts it, not present the classic entitled wank yeah. of view. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, making it sort of me, the, the, the entire idea for me of trying to link, animal oppression to these other forms of oppression is to make it more politically accessible. I'm not interested in gatekeeping or, uh, guilting people into, uh, into agreeing Mm. with my perspective on this. But I do sometimes feel, yeah, I feel disconnected from people that I'm otherwise very like in sync with, Mm. uh, like politically when it comes to this issue. Um, because, and, and that's because I'm immersed in it, you know, like at my nine to five. So obviously I'm going to spend a lot of time thinking about it. Um, for a lot of people, you know, really it's the two points of contact when you go to a supermarket and when you cook the meat, that's kind of, that that's it. And if you have a pet, that's the kind of contact with animals Mm. for a vast majority of people living, you know, in, in contemporary Australia, that's going to be the relationship. Mm.
0: Well, um, I've got two more questions that I want to ask you. I haven't really been asking Hmm. you questions exactly. One is a big one, which is like, what do you see as the goals of animal liberation or your version of it? But before you get there, I want to ask, you know, I feel like you can go on for that one for a while, Probs. But a more specific one, uh, which I just thought of when you said about this visual issue or the politics of sight, as you said. I always think it's specifically messed up when, you know, like a chicken shop has a logo which is a picture of a chicken, and it yeah. happens all the time, and- a, a smiling picture- chicken. Yeah, sure, I guess, yeah, like a happy, funky chicken, but like, I, why? I don't get it. Why like, do people want to be reminded? Yeah, why do people think it's a good idea to remind- their customers of it or like yeah i don't know that's, it just seems is, what, like a that dangerous is
1: total total ideological victory when you can do that right that is an absolute like just the the indoctrination is so thing. complete yeah. and so perfect you don't even have to be concerned about reminding people of the reality because they are so completely unaware of it or so completely unwilling mm. to look it in the mm. face mm. and that's why i think it's fascinating i think it's one of the most comprehensive ideological victories of capitalism in many ways is to completely, they, they completely get to set the terms of discussion about animal issues. And the fact that we talk, you know, that we talk about it in this sort of consumerist way, the fact that we talk about, um, you know, animals as units of production, as, uh, you know, basically cogs in mm. the industrial mm. Uh, animal agriculture machine is 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 proof of that as well.
2: It's that,
1: like the ideological ground that we're even fighting on has already been predetermined by mm. the fact that it's been, like that animals have been so completely co-opted by capitalism. And I'll give you a number to back that up as well. That of all the the mass of mammals on Earth, 5% are wild animals, 30-ish percent... Are humans and the rest are farmed animals. Like sixty-five percent of all mammals on Earth, wow. are farmed animals. Like mm. that, these these numbers are just like how do how do you argue, you know? Like how do you even begin to fucking undo that? You mm. know what I mean? Mm. This is like this, this mm. victory has been won for decades. Like it's the it, it's kind of over, you know. And so I don't know if if that. If you had something else before jumping into no, the go for bigger it. Yeah. question. But yeah, look, it's really hard to know. I don't know. Um, I mean, look, it the idea of animal agriculture generally, but specifically industrialized animal agriculture, by which I mean, you know, not just factory farming, but like large-scale farming, uh, outdoor animal farming as well of, for example, beef. Um, But, uh, you know, industrial animal agriculture in a capitalist context is totally incompatible with the idea of animal liberation. They just, they simply can't exist. So those, I mean, that's really, again, to sort of have this discussion on those grounds is sort of ceding uh, the territory Mm, to mm. capitalism, I think to a certain extent, but also when you look at the numbers, like, the vast, vast, vast majority of animals, especially on land, uh, you know, are are farmed. Yeah. So those, those are the, like, that's kind of the main, you know, if you if borrow a little bit of utilitarianism from Peter Singer here, that it's like, that's where the vast majority of animal suffering is happening. Yeah. So that's the site at which resistance needs to be mounted. So, yeah, I think... You know, what, what I would love to see in an ideal world is a world where we don't kill animals for food. Uh, we don't confine them. We don't torment them. We don't breed them for consumption or in order to consume, you know, the products mm-hmm. that they produce, whether it be milk or eggs. And where we, you know, coexist with animals in a caring fashion. And, you know, we can't sort of go back to some primitivist conceptualization of human animal relationships sure, or even sure. probably, you know, allied the constructed boundary or division between humans and non humans. Like, it's just too built into the fabric of our society, I think, at this stage to undo. But there are ways of coexisting with animals, even within a capitalist context, where you can care about them, you Mm. can treat them with respect and compassion and, you know, value their experience and emotions. It happens, you know, all over the world in animal sanctuaries where animals who've been rescued from factory farming Mm. systems or who were left for dead by farming systems are given a, a new home where they are allowed to freely express their natural behaviours and, you know, live something much closer to the life that they would naturally. Mm. If not, you know, you can't, uh, unfortunately, in this, like, super urbanised, right, right, like, you know, very different, we live in, obviously, in a very different, uh, you know, environment. Like, most of the animals that are here aren't, don't naturally occur on Mm. this land as well Mm. so you get this kind of you know one of uh an anti favorite gotcha of anti-vegans is like oh well you know if we don't keep raising them then they'll die out is that what you want do you want sheep to be extinct and like well sheep and cows shouldn't really be here in australia they are Mm. a tool of colonialism and Mm. this one of the other uh, political Mm. connections that we Mm. didn't dive into but like Driving cattle across landscapes in so-called Australia was like a fundamental way. Like it was terraforming, it, it just, basically. Yeah, it was
0: terraforming. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, it it like lowered the land by a meter, uh, basically across the entire like entirety yeah. of Australia that it, cattle now killed grow. out
1: all yeah. sorts of na- native plants and thereby yeah. native fauna as well. Yeah. Uh, so cut off existing
0: that... like systems of production and distribution yes. and so on. Yeah.
1: But like understanding that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to go and conduct like a mass slaughter of these animals, yeah. of these yeah. you know invasive species or, or introduced species or whatever you want to call it. Like people, right? Think have there are very, other options. Yeah, people yeah. have a very limited imagination when it comes to yeah. what the fates of animals can be. Yeah, it's either like it's either oh they're running free and wild or they're having their throats slit in mm. in in a factory farm yeah. and uh in a slaughterhouse, and like in between that you know it requires to imagine something different requires imagining a radically different world yeah. you know in all in all respects, and so for me it's an integral part of like my utopian vision uh of you know uh, of uh, whatever like an anarchist or a socialist or communist society. Yeah. Yeah where you know people don't have to work in order to justify their existence. By the same token, animals don't need to be useful in mm. order to mm. exist. They're allowed yeah. to exist because of their own intrinsic value.
0: One of the uh, other major schools of ethics other than utilitarianism is called deontology, which uh, is roughly like duties. It's about what we owe to each other. If people have seen The Good Place. They're always talking about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Immanuel mm-hmm. Kant is sort of the, the big boy for this one. And he has a famous dictum or like line or whatever about how to live sort of his golden rule. He has a few different formulations that he says are all the same, but they're clearly not but anyway um but uh one of them is to treat people as an end unto themselves and not only a means to an end and One of the things that people often point out about that is you are actually allowed to use other people as a means um but you have to also treat them as an end. So for example, when I go to the shop and like buy something like Kant isn't saying like you can't interact with this person because you just want to buy something from them, but he's saying like treat them as a human and like or maybe that's not the right phrase to use, but treat them as a person worthy of dignity or whatever mm. and and respect. And I think that there's something similar with animals in terms of like um I don't know, like I think it's probably no coincidence you and I have both rescued difficult dangerous dogs, and that we put in work on that. But I think that shows that you and I are trying to create these other ways. And, like, I have to keep Bagel basically in solitary confinement, um, which fucking sucks for everyone, and it's not, like my dream yeah. world but it's the solution that i found
1: when i think about well to, to offer him a safe existence within right. the context that we live yeah, yeah. exactly and, and like keeping dante on a leash isn't natural right but if right he's that's a really good if he hurts another dog example. like the system will fucking destroy him
0: it'll kill him or whatever yeah yeah, yeah. it
1: will you know and he would have been killed potentially yes. if i yeah. hadn't fostered him in the first Same. place as well like he yeah, would have been exactly. put down by the shelter so yeah. and, and again we see here this Total lack of inability to imagine anything for yeah. animals other than death or uh, in- basically incarceration. Yeah, right. Yeah. Confinement. But, you know. Like, no, no, not, sure.
0: No, no, no. I'm I'm know. not feeling <laughs> attacked by that. It is what it is. But yeah. No, but no. Like-
1: sorry, I meant uh, not to like you know compare the experience of of human and animal oh, imprisonment because obviously I see. they're pretty different. Yes. There yes. There are massive conceptual overlaps there as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess that's kind of part of the issue is that I have this emotional reaction to like you shouldn 't treat people like this, but like yeah i i don't know I, I I think there's this i I just wanted to kind of expand on that thing that you said about imagining other options and like it's kind of a bit self aggrandizing to be like, oh uh, yes, having a pet but like i you said that before that like most people 's contact with animals are at the supermarket, at the stove, and if they have a pet, and yeah. um that's a crucial a crucial part of our relationships with animals. But uh, anyway, yeah, yeah um, we could do a absolutely. whole other episode on the differences, quote unquote, differences between pet animals and industrial animals. But um, yeah, I think a lot of people can draw those connections. Yeah.
1: And look, yeah, no, I, absolutely. I'm glad that you expanded on that. Um, there's uh, a couple of other points that I kind of wanted to touch on before we wrap up the episode. Um, I haven't gone into very much detail here about what you might describe as like the rational reasons that animal agriculture needs to end. But Mm. I I did talk about worker exploitation. Mm. You know, we haven't really talked about environmental racism Mm. where, Mm -hmm. um, which is especially a problem in the States where factory farms are placed, you know, in black and brown communities basically and just poison everybody in their radius because they, you know, just imagine the amount of shit produced by mm. you know five thousand pigs cows, or whatever. Yeah. You know, yeah. and what that does to the local environment. Yeah. Attendant to that is the concept of um, environment of uh of like of food justice. The yep. fact that uh in poorer communities it's much easier to get you know a hamburger that's really unhealthy for you than it is to get a fresh vegetable, for example. There's another kind of connection. There's also the broader environmental impacts, which I'm yep. sure for most people is actually the first thing that they think of sure. when they think of not eating animals. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of become uh, one of the top line items in uh, for many environmental organizations. Yeah, yeah. the climate to point change out how, related reasons. Mainly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, not yeah. just kind of like the direct methane release from uh, cows which is yep. a huge, actually, an surprisingly an large, yeah. of... and surprisingly, an enormous driver of land clearing. Land clearing is the big one, yeah. Yep. Which is often, you know, people. That... <laughs> this is another anti-vegan gotcha that people like to use when I think we've probably just discussed it on the show before. So it's like, but oh, the there's are like, bugs? oh, they're... well, no, it's... everyone's like, uh... oh, so there's so much land clearing in order to grow soy. Uh, so tofu is actually bad for the environment. It's like that's Ugh. that land is being cleared and that soy is being grown as animal feed. Yes. Like at the very kind of basic, you know, I don't know about
0: at the, cascades.
1: Ex- exactly. The amount of uh, like land area, water usage, et cetera, that goes into producing, you know, a kilogram of animal protein yeah. versus all of the plant protein that was required to like make that. As opposed to just giving that kilo of plant plant protein, yeah. to humans directly, yeah. for example, yeah.
0: it's 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 ten percent basically at each level of the ecosystem. So, ten um, percent of grass turns into cow, and then ten percent of cow turns into human, or something along those lines. Or, like the, <laughs> right. the ca- sorry, like you only get ten percent of the calories at each level. Y- yeah, um, so, yeah, yeah. No it's so massive when you grow soy wastage. to then. Feed a cow, to then feed a human. It's something like one percent or ten yeah. percent. I don't know. My math is terrible. I don't. And want to also, try you, doing numbers, but... <laughs> you've
1: burned down a part of the fucking Amazon, the Amazon in order to yeah. grow that soy. In the oh man,
0: I, this is just a completely anecdotal thing. Someone on Facebook was like, "I I live in the Amazon, and it is gone." Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah well, yeah. The, the and like you know, briefly touched on the idea of animal agriculture being a, a tool of colonialism, and mm. it's that's still happening in uh like you know indigenous populations are still being dispossessed by the animal agriculture industry yeah in especially uh in in south america but all over the world um in order to make room for either the animals themselves or the feed required to grow them the absolutely insane amount of feed yeah required to grow them yeah um so look that's me blowing over a couple of the like here are some practical reasons why animal agriculture is yeah. very, very bad. Um, but the other, but those are thing all that that just
0: we, utilitarian reasons that affect humans, right? Like, and and your exactly, whole point of which this is why I don't rely. i exactly, yeah,
1: but, yeah. That's why I don't like to rely on them. Yeah. Uh, they're all true, yes, and they're yes. all very good, uh, uh, important, but, you know, and by yeah, themselves and
0: sh- enough to fucking get rid of this industry,
1: right? But at the end of the day, you know even from just a political perspective from my you know in my opinion, like wanting justice and freedom for oppressed and confined individuals should be enough yes. you know yes. even before you go down to the like very base level of like I think animals' experience is valuable and worth considering um but uh there was one other thing- point that uh we we kind of glossed over before when I was talking about the um sort of conceptual political comparisons that I see between various other issues. Um, not, not just that I see, but that have been um, described. Yeah. Um, other issues. And one I didn't touch on is, is the crossover between uh, disability and animal liberation. And so this is another area where it's like the, you, you want to be really, really careful in the way that you talk about this mm-hmm. stuff because mm-hmm. um, as, as I described, you know, the, the same logic of white supremacy that animalizes s- certain people... That animalization uh, and dehumanization mm. equally you know or you know is also uh, inflicted upon disabled people as well yeah
0: well it 's eugenics and right uh, the, yeah, the same logic leads to that same tearing that we talked about before, yeah.
1: yeah, and so i I really only know of one writer who or i 've only personally read one writer who's kind of uh talked about these connections, um, her name is Sonora Taylor. She's uh, yeah, disability advocate and, and an artist. And she, she wrote a book called Beasts of Burden, which I think the subtitle is like Disability and Animal Liberation or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and she makes a number of really interesting points. One that she makes is that the way, I, I, again, and this is kind of um, maybe like a, a theoretical sibling to the understanding of uh, white supremacy as rooted in anim- in um mm-hmm. in speciesism, but that the way that we value animals tends to be for their kind of recognizably able-bodied human esque traits, right? She um uses uh, the an example of a story about uh, a collection of uh, chimps who were being used for experiments in an American university. I think it was in like the 70s or 80s. Sure. And these chimps were taught sign language. Mm-hmm. And so were able to communicate, you know, using language with humans. Uh, and then once uh, there was this kind of campaign to get them released, um, because like, hey, they, they, like we can understand what these beings are telling us. Like they shouldn't be locked up in cages all day. And so a number of these chimps were released, but they're, of that cohort of chimps that were experimented on, Some weren't released. And one of them was uh this chimp whose name escapes me, but who could also sign, but basically was just uh I don't know if they were shy or uh or or what, but they didn't actually like uh they didn't make it as obvious as the other chimps that they could sign. Right. And so they weren't released because they weren't considered kind of human Human enough enough. by this campaign. Mm -hmm. So Sonora Taylor uses that to illustrate the way that you know the amount of uh, consideration and care that is given to animals is actually kind of rooted in certain uh, uh, ableist conceptualizations of what oh, like makes what a somebody normal
0: human is, or something, or like whatever. A... Right,
1: right. Hmm. Um, she also kind of has brings up some very complicated questions which she doesn't really answer, but um, I think are really interesting. To bring up and, and and are definitely food for thought. And it's about the way, and, it, and this kind of goes back to um, you know, the the sort of ableist endpoint of some of Peter Singer's thinking as mm-hmm. well, in terms of what makes a valuable life, what makes a life worth living. And one of the things that uh animal advocates uh love to talk about is how Industrial animal agriculture systems breed animals that whose lives consist purely of pain that we have so kind of completely perverted mm. um, their evolution that they're, they're, uh, they're, they're like, for example, chickens can't hold their own weight because their yep, breasts yep. Are, so, uh, are bred to be so large. You know, to, to, to have more meat or they, and they suffer from osteoporosis because they don't get enough, uh, egg laying hens don't get enough calcium because they're constantly producing eggs. Calcium is required for the, um, their shells, uh, the uh, eggshells, uh, these kinds of things or that, uh, you know, that animals are bred to have lifespans that are like 5% of what they would Mm, naturally mm. experience, you know? So these animals are like they're literally designed to die at six weeks old. Their hearts give out because their bodies are too large to be supported by their vital organs. Yeah. Um, and you know this is kind of held up as this really fucking awful, uh, like evil Frankenstein-esque sort of thing to do right. to a human, to, to to do to a to a uh, to a to an individual or a being. And it is. But then, how do you hold that? Without also mm. turning disability into this thing that that is wholly negative and mm. that you know no one should have to experience, um, Sonora Taylor describes. She, you know, she views her own disability as like as what she calls a, a generative space, as yeah. something that has this kind of potential and has re- revealed all these amazing things about mm. the world and herself. To her, she speaks about it really beautifully. And so she she talks about as an uh, as you know an a- animal liberationist the struggle of trying to hold these two ideas sure. together side by side you know that like imposing a physical disability on 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 a being is not something that should ever be done mm. but at the same time not condemning the experience of sure. being disabled
0: I think. I can understand why that's sort of, like, theoretically a hard needle to thread, but it's, like, why chopping someone's hand off isn't the same as someone not having a hand, you know? Like, um... Right. Well, and, I think and, like, I... The... Yeah. I, again, I can see why it's hard to maybe pinpoint the exact reason why one is okay and one's not okay, or, like, whatever. But, like, um... I, yeah, I mean... I think the... it is also obvious as well.
1: To, look to an extent, it gets very kind of messy when you're talking about when Peter Singer, for example, starts to talk about okay, you know, should uh, children with severe disabilities be allowed to live? Yeah. Does it? Does a chicken who can't support their own weight, you know, should they should they be put down for their own good? Right. Like those are the kinds of uh, comparisons that Sonora Taylor teases out there, and <clears throat> I think that deeply thinking about that stuff can be really instructive mm. about the way that we think about both of those issues. And I, and, you know, again, here, I, I really, you know, don't want to animalize people with disabilities, yeah. Yeah. but, uh, you know, the, obviously we're talking about two very, very different experiences, not, you know, not least because some of these like physical impairments are uh, in animals, they're imposed by capitalism. Mm. Right. and. You know, which is obviously it's a very different issue. But yeah, she raises some very complex, yeah. yeah um, tricky conversations. And and that was just one thing one area, another conceptual area I wanted to touch on. Mm-hmm. Um and just to point people in the direction of, of Sonora Taylor's work and writing right. because Yeah, it's very illuminating, I think.
2: Um before we
0: finish, I just wanted to this is maybe another like it's not animal exactly, but it's uh, about utilitarianism and, and tangentially relates to my disability. Not so tangentially. But uh, before I was saying, like, oh, there's plenty of critiques of utilitarianism that I think are better than the ones that, that you sort of brought up. And one of them is uh, negative utilitarianism, which is uh, when you say, okay, so um, actually everyone's life is more suffering than it is joy, Everyone mm-hmm. should not live. That would be the best thing in terms of like how much suffering and joy there is, would be to to not be alive. And therefore, the most ethical thing to do is to kill as many people as possible, as painlessly as possible.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Uh, and I remember reading that and being like, wow, that's extraordinarily convincing. I'm going to have to not think about that as much as possible. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that's been my... I think that might have been the reason I stopped calling myself a utilitarian. I was like, "Oh, that's an unacceptable conclusion," <laughs> and uh, I'll have to just find something else then.
1: Well, that's uh, it, and that's why you. I think it's so important to root th- these kinds of ethical discussions in that feminist ethic of care, yes, yeah. um, and also to bring that, you know, willingness to uh, respect and value the experience of beings outside of yourself to. Mm. Mm. our entire political perspective i mean
2: Mm.
1: you know like at the end of the day it's this it's got the same uh same root for me caring about people and caring about animals yeah Yeah. um you know they're they're not for me distinct things conceptually impressionist you know i have absorbed as much uh pro animal agriculture propaganda as anybody else yeah. and that's you know obviously going to still massively affect the way that i think In behave yeah most
0: of your close friends aren't cows
1: that's right not not yet um look you know you're talking before about what would you like to see what 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 yeah. um, you know what kind of world would you like to see well i i'd love a society where i don't have to work and i can spend all my time looking after animals instead mm. just hanging out at the at the sanctuary be fucking lit It'd be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Some of the best days of my life have been going to visit animal sanctuaries and just, and and hanging out with, you know, these beings who were basically rescued from the machinery of capitalism, Mm. um, to, to then go and hang out in a fucking field, eat grass, run around and chill with your buds. Like what an amazing life. Um
0: I believe it was the, uh Epicurus who said the greatest joy is to enjoy a nice meal in a garden with some friends and that is just <laughs> as true of uh, non-human animals as it is for human animals.
1: <laughs> That's very true. Um Look, I had a final thing here which I don't know, it might be too dark of a thing to end on. But um nice. <laughs> You know, we just did say something nice, and so maybe we can return to it. But I, I guess you know we didn't really dive into it. We glossed over this, but I had mentioned the politics of sight, which is a, a phrase that I borrowed from a writer called Timothy Pachira. I think that's how you pronounce his name, P a c h i r a t. He wrote a book called Every Twelve Seconds, which is how often an animal is slaughtered in America. Um, Fucked. He went under undercover in a in a slaughterhouse and wrote about that experience. And he talks about the politics of sight site. Um, I, in my job, I make videos as I as I mentioned from mm. an animal rights organisation. I've been exposed to dozens, if not hundreds, mm. likely of hours of uh, fo- footage. It's definitely in the hundreds now. I'm thinking about it. Spent a long, long, long time watching footage of industrial animal farming practices of what um, industrialized animal slaughter in particular looks like. And I haven't quite like firmed up this idea Mm -hmm. or description in my head, but I wanted to try and describe the sort of experience a little bit for people because I don't think that, you know, everybody necessarily needs to expose themselves to mm. this horror. Um, but I personally have found it extremely instructive in understanding capitalism. Because it's like... When I talk about it, it's the most, like, capitalized or industrialized mm. form of sy- systemic oppression, what I mean is that it's ju- it's very fucking literal that these lives and, uh, and the bodies of these animals are literally
0: commodities
1: yeah they are murdered and their bodies are torn up and reconstituted Mm. into profit and there's something kind of so raw and pure about the capitalist that about that function of uh in in, of capitalism to me that i think i don't know as an image i find really helpful (laughs) i think even though it's fucking horrifying it's kind of this is what capitalism would do to it's and what it does to anybody that it can get away with doing it to. Mm. And the reason that they've been able to mechanize at an absolutely incomprehensible scale the killing of individual beings is because of the uh, how effective the ideological distinction between humans and non-human animals has been Mm. by interrogating the validity of that distinction by asking ourselves whether or not we value the experiences and the lives of these animals. uh, Then, you know, we start to unpick the ideological cover that this industry operates under. And for me, that's a fundamentally anti-capitalist thought. And, mm. uh, and in a very important anti, anti-capitalist act, I think. Mm. Because you should, basically, the, to to me, in my mind, the animal, industrial animal agriculture is the kind of bleeding edge of capitalist production sure. in many ways. Mm. Like, you know, there are people out there right now working on ways to design machines to kill thousands of animals more efficiently Mm. like mechanized fucking death like (laughs) uh, turning bodies into profit i just don't know how much more of a literal embodiment of capitalism you could possibly ask for and so anyway as i said it's a kind of abstract i haven't really firmed it up yet Mm. maybe it'll get turned into a fucking poem or something at some point yeah great um but like i i i guess i just wanted to like just try and express a little bit of how i feel that uh opposing industrial animal agriculture is a really important site of anti-capitalist resistance um for you know humans and obviously for the animals within Mm. those systems you know haven't even haven't even started to talk about animal resistance Mm. but you know again if if you if we've got this sort of foundation of the feminist ethic of care in the sense of looking at animals and 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 trying to understand what they are telling us the animals in these systems buck and struggle and run and free each other Mm. goats from have escaped from slaughterhouses and come back to unlock the gates to let other animals out you know like and these animals they resist their they resist being made, being made to be. They resist their death up until mm. the last second. Mm. They fucking fight. You know, mm. there's no one can look at that and and say, "Oh, there's no internal life in this individual." You know, and you also can't look at them and say, "There's no resistance." Yeah, like yeah. they absolutely do resist. So you know, we as I said, you know, we kind of that's not something that we that we've had time to go into in depth. But like that's an important part of to remember in this whole conversation as well is that the animals are also resisting.
0: Wow, there's been a whole lot, Zach. I think we've covered a lot of ground there, both personal and theoretical and, uh, you know, statistical or whatever. Like, you know, I think there's a bunch of different angles there. And um, uh, hopefully... Yeah, our listeners have got something out of it. I know I have. I've definitely had a few thoughts during this conversation that I haven't had before, and um, I'll, I'll that's the idea. Take them away and make some memes about them, I guess. Um, but <laughs> nice. yeah, thank you, thank you so much. And um, yeah, uh, no,
1: thanks if- for indulging me. Thanks for the suggestion, Leah. Um, I hope that this somewhat uh, answers the prompt of how to speak about veganism in a non. Uh, <laughs> what was it? Not entitled uh, wanky way, oh. yeah. Um I don't know. I mean there's so much here that that, that we didn't touch on as yeah, well. Of course. Yeah. Um and like, you know, to to acknowledge for example the you know the the very like white Christian ethical framework that you know animal saviorism yeah. takes yeah, you know, is yeah. based on we
0: haven't talked about Hindu animal right. ethics or, or Buddhist, Buddhist or, ethics or you know, yeah yeah.
1: You know, so again, there's like you know, the, as I said, this is yeah, really so. from a very kind of white Western perspective that we're bringing this, and the, and and mostly in in regards to animal agriculture as opposed to generally speaking, how we you know, relate to
0: animals. So.
1: Yeah, which yeah. is like you know, you obviously it's a massively multifaceted thing. Anyway, I hope we've touched on a few interesting things and. Yeah. Genuinely, like I mean this, if you're listening to this and you're interested in anything that we've touched on, uh, I mentioned the names of a few writers who've really influenced the way that I've thought about this. I'd be more more than happy. I'd be overjoyed to pass on resources and to recommend books and, and articles and that kind of thing. So please do reach out if you, um, if you, even if you just want to chat about it, like <laughs> uh, uh, having this conversation, I'm realizing there's a lot that I want to say about this. So. <laughs> mm-hmm please get in touch um, anyway. he loves it <laughs> yeah
2: mm.
1: yeah well is is that gonna do us noon? yeah I reckon um, well thank you very much everyone for tuning in uh-huh. we won't
0: shill our Patreon because you guys are already here
1: you're already here yeah Um. yeah let us know what you thought of the episode I'd be interested to know this kind of wasn't really a funny one I don't yeah. think there are any jokes in here oh yeah I was gonna open with the joke I forgot oh yeah um, how can you tell if someone's a vegan don't uh, worry they'll tell you
0: a meat eater will Identify them and harass them very loudly <laughs> for the rest of the evening.
1: <laughs> yeah, take your pick. Yeah, pick your punchline. Go, uh, uh, go look right, at cool. vegan
0: sidekick as well. Oh, I,
1: I actually don't know it.
0: Yeah, you do. We. uh Oh, is that the
1: one? It's it, it's got it, all the reasons for.
0: It's cartoons, but uh it's on Facebook. It's just like drawings, but all of them are like, not all of them, but uh, I'd say good eighty percent of them have a really good structure of like a meat eater says something and then they say something that immediately contradicts themselves. Or, like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's um, it, it's definitely along the entitled wanky end of the spectrum from where we've <laughs> okay. been trying to be. But it's, it's, you know, still good shit.
1: Nice. Well, thanks very much for tuning in, everybody. Uh, and thank you so much for supporting the show. And we will catch you next week for our 100th episode, or <laughs> technically later it's this week this for week. our 100th episode. Yeah. yeah.
0: Keep us back in the free world. Crunch, crunch.